0: Hello, and welcome to the new episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And I'm your host, Olga Branninger. For each episode, we choose a recent publication in the field of Russian and Eurasian Studies. And today, we are going to be talking to Viktor Taki about his new book, Tsar and Sultan, Russian Encounters with the Ottoman Empire. Viktor Taki's book is dedicated to the study of previously unknown sources, such as diplomatic correspondence, captive narratives, and military memoirs. This book also takes a very interesting look at the Russian Orientalism. So I'm very excited to be interviewing its author today.
1: So welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasia Studies, Victor. I am very excited to have you with us today to talk about your new book, Tsar and Sultan, Russian Encounters with the Ottoman Empire which I enjoyed incredibly, and I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you.
2: Uh, Hi Olga, thank you for the invitation. I also do look forward to to talking about it.
1: So, perhaps to start us off, you could tell us a little bit about yourself, say, your background, and maybe how you became interested in Russian and Eurasian studies.
2: Uh, Okay, well, I was born in the Republic of Moldova, at the time when it was still part of the Soviet Union, and uh, I became interested in history uh, early on. I think that I uh, began to specialize in history in junior high school. Uh, There was such a possibility. And then I uh got an undergraduate degree in history at Moldova State University, and that was in 2001. And in the same year, I went to Hungary, to Central European University in Budapest. And, uh, you know, there I pursued my graduate studies. Uh, I earned both an MA and a PhD degree from uh, the Central European University. And uh, actually, I wasn't really interested in Russian and East European history until my doctoral studies, uh, my first uh, interest was in the intellectual history of the Renaissance, in the cultural history of uh, uh, Western Europe, Uh, and so actually my MA thesis was on Nicola Machiavelli, but uh, people around me and uh, the uh, Central European University professors were pushing me in the direction of Russian history and of uh, East European history, and I thought that ultimately it would be perhaps a natural choice for me given my country of origin, given my linguistic background. So um, that's how I ended up uh, in a doctoral program um, at Central European University, specializing in uh, Russian uh, and East European history of the 18th and 19th century. My, um, my doctoral uh, supervisor was uh, Alfred J. Weber, uh, who before coming to Central European University was a distinguished American specialist in Soviet and uh, Imperial Russian foreign policy and taught for decades at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that's how I uh you know decided to pursue this project on uh, the Russian-Romanian relations in the 19th century in the context of the Russian-Ottoman wars, and that was what my doctoral dissertation was about essentially. Uh so uh it, it was called uh uh, Russia on the Danube, uh, imperial expansion and political reform in Moldavia and Wallachia, the two Romanian principalities in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and so I defended my PhD in 2008, and uh, I taught for about a year uh, in, in Moldova um, at uh, Moldova State Pedagogical University, and then I decided to um, to, to go uh, across the Atlantic and uh, basically emigrated to Canada. Just as, as a regular emigrant, uh, and, and I landed first in Montreal in, in Quebec uh, and lived for a year there. I taught at Carleton University in Ottawa at that time. Uh, that was my actually first course in uh, Russian and uh, South history in English uh, that I ever uh, taught. And then uh, there followed uh, a series of um, uh, visiting uh, appointments at the University of Alberta. Dalhousie University in Halifax, then I pursued a uh, postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Alberta again, and for the past two or three years I have been teaching at uh, a number of smaller universities in Edmonton, uh, the King's University and uh, Concordia University. Uh, and uh, actually, my uh, my my book uh, that, that you that you read uh, uh, is is actually the result of my postdoctoral project. It's not uh, it's not actually my dissertation. Uh, it's rather uh, a study, a more general study that uh, reconstructs the cultural context of the Russian policies uh, in uh, in the Balkans in the context of the Russian Ottoman wars. Uh, but I think that uh, will lead us to the second part of the interview where you're going to, s- to ask specific questions on, on, on that book, so I'm, I'm, I'm ready to answer them.
1: Well, let's wow. move on straight to that. Um, mm-hmm. So you start your book by reminding the reader that Russia was more at war with the Ottoman Empire than with any other power. And maybe mm-hmm. you could um start by talking about why the warfare between Russia and the Ottoman Empire was so intensive, so protracted, and seems mm-hmm. to be so important for
2: Russia. Well, uh, the most remarkable thing is that before there was this series of eleven Russian Russian Ottoman wars, uh, the Russian Ottoman relations were rather peaceful. Uh, I mean, for the first uh, roughly two centuries after they began in the late 15th century, uh, and that's despite the religious divide, obviously. Uh, so uh, the the Muscovite uh, grand dukes and later tsars. Uh, uh, maintained rather peaceful relations with, with the Ottoman with the Ottoman sultans, and it was really only uh, at the end of the 17th century that this uh, this persistent rivalry began. And uh, there is a number of reasons for that, but I would say that uh, the, the the starting point was 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 uh, was obviously the struggle. Over the territories that are nowadays Ukraine, right, uh, following the uh, Moscow's uh, incorporation of the Ukrainian Hetmanate and uh, a prolonged civil war uh, that uh, ensued in the 1660s and 17- 1670s, was in the context of this civil war that different factions within the uh, Ukrainian Hetmanate's uh, elite uh, pursued pro Russian or uh, uh, pro, Pro-Ottoman orientation, and that's how actually this this uh, this conflict broke out. But there was of course another uh, reason, uh, I would say a more uh, persistent one, and that was the Crimean age, Uh the Crimean Khanate that was uh, kind of a vassal polity of the Ottoman Empire, and that. Um, In the context of the early modern uh, periods, um, had rather adverse relations with, with both Muscovy and uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, um, as it were, it was this problem of persistence, uh, Raids of the Crimean Tatars against the southern territories of both uh, the Muscovite uh, state and Polish-Hungarian Commonwealth, and uh, ultimately uh, it was uh, in order to this constant drain on 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 human resources uh, that uh, the Muscovite rulers ultimately decided to uh, to embark on a series of campaigns against against Crimea in the late um, uh, 17th century, uh, and ultimately one can see that. Uh, at least the first uh, the first period of the Russian Ottoman Wars uh, the period of the uh, late 70s and 18th century was about uh, you know coming into control of the northern Black Sea uh, region and then of course in the context of this struggle uh, the factor of Russia's uh, uh, Orthodox corereligionists in the uh, Ottoman Empire uh, came came to prominence uh, right uh, first Russians tried to use uh, their Orthodox religionists as a kind of, uh, uh, local support, uh, against, against the Ottomans. But then ultimately, uh, you know, this, this local clients, uh, started to wag the dog. So, so, it's you kind know, of this piece of proverbial chaos that wags the dog. And so eventually, uh, you know, this championship of the rights of the, uh, Uh, Orthodox religionists of the Russian Empire acquired a logic and a momentum of its own, and uh, that helped to perpetuate uh, this this series of uh, Russian Ottoman wars into the 19th century. Uh, And and so, uh, as a result, we end up with the longest uh, series of conflicts, uh, um, uh, one of the longest series of conflicts uh, in human history between uh, any two powers, uh, because uh, ultimately those 11 Russian-Ottoman wars extend from the late 17th century to the late 19th or early 20th century, depending upon how we count uh, the the First World War, which also was a Russian-Ottoman war. Uh, and and uh, and uh, they took every 15 to 30 years, so, so a very very persistent um, conflict.
1: No. Thank you, thank you. Um, and would that be correct to suggest, uh, based on your book, that you know one important aspect of Russia's encounter with the Ottomans was that it actually contributed to the emergence of modern Russian identity.
2: Oh, yes, uh, absolutely, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, I, I try, in my book I try to emphasize that uh, Russian encounters with the Ottoman Empire were not only uh, encounters with an Asian power, or uh, uh, let's put it this way, a power that came to be described as, as Asia, as the Orient. They were also about uh, the uh, Russian encounter with Europe, right? Because it was actually in the Ottoman Empire and in its capital, Constantinople, Istanbul, that the Russian uh, the Tsarist diplomats uh, um, tried to pass for Europeans and tried to, uh, to to integrate very much into this diplomatic community uh, that emerged on, on, on the shores of the Bosphorus uh, Um, in the 17th century, uh, right? So, uh, in other words, uh, this Russian encounters with the Ottoman Empire reflect the process of the westernization of the Russian elites, among other things. And in this respect, uh, of course, uh, they are quite central to understanding modern Russian identity, Uh, an identity which uh, is defined both uh, in opposition to this constructed uh, Asian or Oriental other, but also in, in some, uh, in some opposition to, to the European order, because while they try to emphasize their Europeanness, as their, their, their commitment, so to say, to the principles of, uh, uh, of European, um, uh, international relations, uh, at a certain moment, of course, in the context of the Eastern question, uh, since the late 18th century, uh, the Russians found themselves, uh, often in tension and in conflict with, uh, uh Western, uh, Western, uh, Western powers. And ultimately this conflict culminated, uh, in the Crimean War, with which my book ends, right? So uh, basically, uh, one can see the Russian identity, the modern Russian identity as, as, uh, as being formed in opposition to these two constitutive others. And in this respect, of course, the history of the Russian-Ottoman encounters is is absolutely essential, I would say, to uh, Russian intellectual history, uh, Russian cultural history uh, in the 18th and 19th century.
1: Perhaps you could talk a little bit more about the intertwining of Russian-Ottoman and Russian-Europe relationship, because since you mentioned that, you know, the discovery Mm -hmm. of um, the Orient was also a chapter in Russia's Westernization story. I'm very interested in how all this fits together.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, I think that uh, I, I begin uh, you know, by discussing this subject in the in the first chapter, which is about uh, cultural history of the Russian Ottoman diplomatic context. And I I emphasize there that uh, you know this is perhaps the the oldest uh, historically the oldest form of uh, uh, Russia's encounters with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so basically, I trace the history of uh, Russian uh, embassies, Muscovite and the later Russian embassies to Constantinople, and I uh, I demonstrate there that uh, whereas initially the goal of the Tsarist diplomats was to assert their symbolic Equality with the Ottoman Sultans, uh, and they, they would uh, persistently call, you know, the Russian Tsars would persistently call uh, the Ottoman Sultans their brothers. Uh, beginning with Peter the Great, uh, you have a, a different kind of motivation, so to say, behind their actions. And this is, uh, you know, this desire to, uh, to, to become part of the European diplomatic community uh, uh, in the uh, Ottoman capital. Uh, Peter the Great uh, manages to uh, secure uh, the appointment of a permanent Russian uh, representative to the Ottoman capital. Uh, That was uh, Peter Andreevich Tolstoy, the ancestor of uh, the Russian great novelist. Uh, and, uh, and from that moment onwards, uh, the Tsarist diplomats, uh, increasingly, um, uh, integrate into this, uh, European diplomatic core, uh, on the, uh, shores of the Bosphorus. Uh, so, and then, of course, their goal continues to be the assertion of the status of the Russian ruler as equal to that of the foremost powers, uh, in the, in the, in the world of the 18th and the 19th century, right? Uh, So it was in this context that uh, you see the first um, occasion, so to say, for the orientalization of the uh, Ottoman Empire, which at the same time becomes an occasion for asserting Russia's Western Western identity, namely at a certain moment in the 18th century, the Russian diplomats uh, begin to comment on the mm, uh, deviation of the Ottoman sultans from the accepted norms of European international relations. The uh, Ottoman ambassadorial uh, ceremony um, uh, is is not following the model, so to say, of the ambassadorial uh, ceremonies. Uh, that characterise contemporary European uh, relations, and uh, you see that increasingly the Tsarist diplomats present this difference as the outcome of the Oriental, uh, Asiatic, uh, one may say despotic uh, character uh, of the Ottoman um, uh, political system and of the Ottoman foreigners, so to say, uh, uh, to the uh, European uh, cultural uh, notions. And of course, in the, it was in this context that the Tsarist diplomats uh, uh, emphasized their own commitment to the European format of international relations. And uh, what is this format? Well, uh, uh, it's based on a number of uh, principles such as the extraterritoriality of, uh, of the envoys, of, of the diplomats, uh, as um, reciprocity, uh, the, you know, the mutual exchange of ambassadors, uh, right. So, uh, it was, uh, the supposed failure of the Ottoman sultans to respect these principles, uh, that in the writings uh, of the Tsarist diplomats emerges as one of the important markers of their otherness, of their foreigners to, uh, the, um, ultimately to the civilization, to the European, um, uh, cultural, uh, forms and models. And so, uh, it was through this that, uh, the Tsarist diplomats in the 18th century began to assert their 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 um, uh, you know European uh, the their European states the U- European character, uh, but at the same time, as I mentioned, uh, the Eastern question, of course, uh, occasions uh, tensions ultimately between. Uh, the Ottoman, uh, between, between Russia and the European powers uh, that become increasingly concerned with the mounting influence that Russia has over the Ottoman co uh, And so uh, uh, it was in also in the context of this uh, diplomatic relations that the Tsarist diplomats uh, also uh, start to criticize not only the Ottomans for their foreigners to the European uh, cultural uh, notions, but also... They criticize uh, the, mm, uh, the the, the uh, kind of condescending and indulgent attitude of the European diplomats towards these Ottoman deviations from the uh, accepted uh, diplomatic norms uh, so they seen that the, you know the outcome of the manifestation of uh, the desire to of the Europeans to Somehow pacify the Ottomans to win them uh, on their sides uh, again on their side against Russia and so on. So uh, we can see how how the diplomatic contexts occasion both the uh, assertion of uh, the uh, Oriental character of the Ottoman Empire and of Russia's Europeanness, but also the uh, occasion uh, the early criticisms that the Russians have uh, of uh, the European manner of conducting. Uh, foreign relations and specifically relations with the Ottomans uh, and, and in this respect when we say that Russian Ottoman encounters demonstrate both Russia's westernization but also the limits of Russia's integration into this uh, you know, Western or European uh, community of great powers
1: So this took us through your first chapter which is dedicated to one of the three principal dimensions of Russian Ottoman encounters which is diplomacy and then mm-hmm. your second chapter, chapter is called captivity narratives, and mm-hmm. it talks about the experiences of captives and the way of narrating them. And mm-hmm. something which struck me is, um, the way, the role of religion in mm-hmm. the way the captives related their experiences. Could you yeah. tell a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that, uh, religious history experiences, uh, somewhat of a renaissance in, uh, in the historiography of, uh, imperial Russia. Uh, and and certainly, uh, if you look at the narratives of captivity uh, of, of the subjects of the Tsars uh, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, you can see an early importance of religion. Uh, captivity was uh, initially, at least, above all about uh, about, about the religion about the religious experiences, uh, right? Um, you know, if we speak about the cap- captivity narratives of the 17th century, you can see how uh, how uh, Uh, you know, the the captives who managed to return uh, from the Ottoman Empire, how they give account of their religious practices uh, uh, while in captivity, uh, how they try to minimize, uh, you know, all sorts of possible deviations from from those religious practices, uh, how they deny, so to say, the fact of their apostasy from orthodoxy. Uh, in, 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 in most cases. And then you can also see that uh, uh, the religious practices of, of the captives is something that interests uh, the Muscovite authorities uh, above all. Uh, you know, the first captivity narratives uh, come to us in the form of the records of interrogation of, uh, of the captives who managed to return from the Ottoman Empire that were conducted at the Patriarch's office uh, uh, in the 17th century. Uh, so you can see that uh, instead of this uh, compassion and instead of this sympathy towards the captives, which is kind of uh, the normal, I would say, modern attitude towards the captives, uh, you can see somewhat of a, of a more suspicious attitude on the part of the Muscovite authorities, who uh, who uh, kind of have reasons to doubt that... Uh, these people uh, remained uh, staunchly orthodox uh, during their period of captivity, and uh, you know the the captives who respond to the questions of the Masperati religious authorities try to emphasize that despite all hardships, despite all all uh, challenges, they in fact were uh, you know uh, loyal to orthodoxy throughout uh, throughout their uh, travails. So. Uh, uh, the, the early importance of religion uh, in, uh, in, um, in captivity uh, narratives uh, is uh, beyond doubt. But at the same time, as you move to the 18th century and the early 19th century, you see that uh, gradually, uh, uh, you know, the importance of religion declines and uh, captivity uh, is increasingly interpreted within, a, within an alternative framework of uh, reference. Uh uh, instead of the Muscovite uh, religious authority, the most important um, um, uh, authority, so to say, that passes judgment on the captives uh, and upon their behavior in captivity uh, is, is the Russian-educated public. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to see that initially this Russian-educated public could also be quite uh, quite suspicious, so to say, of the captives. Uh, and and um, uh, is is above all interested in seeing that the captives uh, manage to uh, retain their basic human dignity in captivity, uh, and so the captives do not spontaneously and automatically uh, demand uh, or, or, or command. This uh, this you um, know uh, universal sympathy, uh, compassion, respect that you might expect uh, otherwise um, uh, from uh, from uh, uh, from people who 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 um, learn about uh, the the, uh, the experiences of of the captives, and it was actually only in the late eighteenth uh, century and early nineteenth century that you have a transformation, so to say, of this um, reserved, so to say. Uh, attitude towards the captives on the part of, of, uh, of the Russian uh, educated public. Uh, and namely, that has to do with the appearance of a number of uh, captivity narratives produced by the uh, officers, uh, by the terrorist uh, officers uh, who fell into captivity, who, who became prisoners of war. In the context of the uh, Russian Ottoman Wars. Uh, So, of course, in contrast to the captives of the early modern period, um, uh, you know, these were educated people uh, and, of course, they had a certain certain advantage, so to say, in portraying their experiences in captivity in a way that would be advantageous to them. Uh, so, uh, in contrast to the early uh, modern captives uh, who uh, give account of their efforts to extract themselves from the captivity, uh, the uh, noble um, uh, officers uh, who became prisoners of war um, emphasize above all their powerlessness uh, in the face of the um, uh, Muslim population, in the face of the uh, Ottoman governors. Uh, and uh, it was ultimately this uh, powerlessness that kind of uh, exculpates them from any possible accusations uh, of, of apostasy or some sort of uh, behavior that would be uh, considered um, uh, not worthy so to say of a noble person uh, and it was in this context that uh, yet another occasion for the orientalization of the ottoman empire presents itself so essentially in order to dispel any possible um, uh, you know doubts on 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 uh, on the part of the reading public about the uh, dignity so to say of the captives uh, the authors of, of the noble captivity narratives uh, Uh, You know, uh, portray uh, the setting in which they found themselves in captivity in Orientalist terms. They uh, speak about the fanaticism of the Muslim crowds. They speak about the uh, despotism of the Ottoman uh, pashas, of the Ottoman governors. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, that, that renders, uh, their captivity narratives the character of some sort of adventure stories. But, uh, the most remarkable, uh, uh characteristic of those captivity narratives is that the, uh, the, uh, the noble protagonist remains, uh, almost always passive, almost always uh, kind of uh, beyond any 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 ability uh, to influence his or her, his his fate, and it is always the intervention of some sort of outside power that uh, extracts uh, the noble captive from from captivity. Uh, so, most usually, it's, of course, the Russian government that sends money, that uh, negotiates better, uh, uh, you know, uh, living conditions for the captives, and that ultimately secures their release. But uh, another way, uh, so to say, in which some sort of external force um, um, saves the noble captives uh, is, is the figure of the Ottoman uh, pashas, of the Ottoman governors, of the so-called noble Turks. Uh, who managed somehow to restrain, so to say, these fanatical outbursts of the Muslim uh, population against uh, against the infidel captives uh, and so on and so forth. So you can see how, again, through uh, through, uh, the, mm, uh, through the through the captivity narratives, you you see another. Um, uh, the site through which uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, is increasingly orientalized uh, in the Russian public publications, and then of course continues the orientalization of the, uh, of the Ottoman Empire that uh, uh, happened in parallel uh, in the diplomatic uh, correspondence and in the writings of the Russian diplomats that were considered uh, in the first chapter of the book.
1: And how about the military accounts? So mm-hmm. in Chapter 3, um, mm-hmm. as I see it, you're talking about the Russian accounts of the Turkish campaign. And mm-hmm. a lot is, of it is dedicated uh, to the reflections of the differences between European and Oriental warfare.
2: Mm-hmm. Is that so? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I basically argue that, uh, you know, accounts of... Uh, of um, uh, Muscovite and Russian embassies, captivity narratives, and uh, memoirs and diaries of the Russian-Ottoman wars constitute the three main aspects of uh, Russia's historical experience uh, of the Ottoman Empire, right? Uh, Because, uh, you know, perhaps several scores of Russian diplomats uh, went to Constantinople uh, to represent the Tsar there, uh, then uh, you know tens of thousands of captives of Russian and Muscovite and Russian captives ended in the uh, Ottoman Empire during the early modern period, and then hundreds of thousands of Russian officers and, uh, and soldiers uh, uh, went to the uh, to, to the Ottoman Empire in order to fight with with, with the Sultan's armies, right? Uh, so, chapter three reflects their experience, uh, and it is based mainly on the uh, memoirs and diaries of the Russian Ottoman wars produced by the uh, Tsarist officers. And indeed, uh, it uh, uh, you know these diaries and officers uh, and ofi- and and these diaries and and, um, and memoirs constitute yet another terrain of the Orientalization of the Ottoman Empire, because indeed, uh, in beginning in the 18th century. The Russian officers increasingly emphasize the Asian of the uh, Ottoman um, uh, you know, Ottoman commanders and uh, the Ottoman troops from the um, modern European uh, models of warfare. Uh, the uh, the Ottoman uh, soldiers uh, are often. Portrayed as formidable warriors uh, individually, but they are uh, definitely criticized uh, and uh, found lacking uh, as as as, um, as as soldiers, as 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 an army. Uh, you know, the inferiority of the Ottoman uh, weapons, of the Ottoman tactics, uh, uh, is, is is something that becomes increasingly evident to the Tsarist uh, officers and uh, to the Tsarist, uh, to the Tsarist commanders, who of course like the Tsarist diplomats, undergo the process of westernization in the uh, 18th century. They are increasingly uh, versed in the uh, European military literature. They increasingly um, assimilate, so to say, the uh, principles of the uh, European military art and European military science, and uh, they increasingly see that the Ottomans do not do that, and at a certain moment they come to interpret uh, the Rus- Russia's successes in the wars against the Ottoman Empire, which of course uh, overwhelmingly were successful for Russia uh, in the 18th in the first half of the 19th century. As the manifestation of uh, uh, of uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, foreigners once again to the European uh, models, to the European principles uh, of warfare that Russia itself uh, managed to uh, to uh, emulate uh, rather successfully, beginning with Peter the Great uh, onwards. So uh, here again, you can see uh, yet another a site for both the construction of the otherners of the Ottomans in the Russian um, uh, publications and then also the assertion of Russia's uh, European uh, Western identity.
1: Now, the fourth chapter, chapter. Um, I mm-hmm. think, presents the Russian perspective on the decline of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. seems that this merit narrative underwent many transformations. So, could yeah. you please talk a- a- about that?
2: Yeah, well, yes, uh, of course. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was uh, referred to as the sick man of Europe, uh, and you know these words are attributed to uh, the Russian Tsar Nicholas I on the eve of the Crimean War. Even though it uh, it looks like he uh, actually did not pronounce that uh, that phrase, that exact phrase. Uh, but definitely, uh, you know, the, this, this idea of the Ottoman decline was was a, a leitmotif uh, of. of of the European and Russian perceptions of the Ottoman Empire in the 18th and the 19th century. And, of course, the Ottoman historiography, the the historiography of the Ottoman Empire, in recent decades, did a lot in order to challenge, so to say, the stereotype of the the Ottoman Empire being uh, declining and ultimately moribund. Uh, and and I, I certainly sympathize uh, with much of that recent scholarship that shows that despite, uh, despite the, the, the defeats, the Ottomans uh, demonstrated certain, certain dynamism, certain ability to adapt uh, to the changing and challenging circumstances, as well as uh, uh, you know, surprising longevity, uh, right? Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, it is absolutely clear that the Russian perceptions of the Ottoman Empire were dominated, so to say, by this uh, by this uh, um, uh, cliché, uh, by this uh, idea of the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman decline. And uh, what I tried to do in chapter four uh, of the book was to present a kind of intellectual history of the idea of the Ottoman decline uh, in Russia. And... Uh, What I'm saying there is that, indeed, uh, while uh, the um, uh, idea of decline was a leitmotif of the Russian representations of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the interpretation of this decline, the interpretation and understanding of the reasons and factors behind this decline... Uh, um, um, we- underwent a surprising uh transformation because what you see in the eighteenth century uh, is 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 this uh, thesis that uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire is declining because it fails to emulate uh, the European arts and sciences the arts and sciences of diplomacy and war that allow the great powers to, uh, to to preserve their status, to assert themselves on the international scene. Uh, it is precisely the successful emulation of those arts and sciences of Europe by post-Petrine Russia that in the understanding of uh, of the Russian elites uh, explains their success in the wars against, against the Ottomans. But then as you move to the 19th century, this understanding of, of, the, Ottoman in, uh, of the Ottoman decline changes because uh, in the early 19th century, the Ottoman Empire itself finally uh, begins uh, this policy of westernization, very much following the example of Petra in Russia, I would say. And uh, particular uh, individual Ottoman sultans uh, have Peter the Great as their role model uh, in a way. Uh, so, uh, um, so you you see the growing Ottoman Westernization that, in some respects, uh, reproduces uh, the Russia's Westernization that began a century earlier. And at the same time, uh, the attitude of the Russian elites towards the West um, uh, changes uh, in this um, uh, first half of the 19th century, especially in the post-Napoleonic period. Because Russia's confrontation with Napoleon uh, produces a very important nationalistic backlash uh, that ultimately uh, makes uh, the Russian the rulers and ultimately, I would say, the Russian elites increasingly critical Of uh, of uh, you know the European civilization and at least of certain aspects of European civilization. So essentially, under Nicholas I, uh, uh, you have this change from uh, the Russian state being the most important European, in the words of Alexander Pushkin, (laughs) into an agency that tries to filter. Uh, the Western and foreign influences and uh, allow only those that are truly beneficial so to say uh, for the Russian society and block those that are subversive, uh, revolutionary and so on and so forth So, uh, basically, uh, you see how in the uh, first half of the 19th century, particularly in the second quarter, I would say, of the 19th century, uh, you have this mounting process of Ottoman westernization that contrasts with the growing... criticism, so so to say, of the Russian rulers and of the Russian elites of certain aspects of Western civilization. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, uh, you know, the Russian understanding of the reasons for continued Ottoman decline changes profoundly. It is no longer the ostensible failure of the uh, Ottoman rulers to imitate and emulate uh, the European arts and sciences that uh, explains their defeats. It is rather uh, this, this, um, um, uh, rushed, uh, this, this uncritical acceptance, this uncritical imitation of external forms of, uh, Western civilization that, that, uh, that, uh, comes with the neglect of the, uh, uh traditional Ottoman, um, institutions and traditional, uh, national Ottoman, uh, qualities that uh, explains why the Ottoman empire is ultimately moribund so and of course the most important uh, uh, category that informs this change uh, in the understanding of the ottoman decline is the category of nationality right uh, the russian word for that would be narodnost right so uh, under nicholas i in russia we have the concept of official nationality which is about uh, this this attempt of the Tsarist regime to to filter, so to say, the Western influences and and, um, uh, block those that are subversive and and, um, uh, revolutionary. And so uh, the the Russian um, uh, public here is criticizing increasingly the Ottoman Westernization policies as ignoring the Ottoman-Turkish nationality, the Ottoman-Turkish narodnost, Right. So, uh, uh, in other words, uh, the uh, idea of the Ottoman decline that used to be uh, a, an occasion for criticizing the Ottomans uh, for their failure to, um, uh, to, to, to westernize turns into uh, the uh, um, criticism of their uncritical imitation of Western civilization that leads to the neglect of the uh, Ottoman-Turkish nationality, and that ultimately explains the continued decline of the Ottoman Empire. So you you see here an interesting inversion, so to say, in this uh, um, uh, argument um, of the Russian observers of the Ottoman Empire uh, as they try to explain uh, the reasons for continued Ottoman decline and continued defeats that the Ottomans suffer. Uh, in in the wars with the Ottoman uh, with the Russian Empire,
1: this is incredibly interesting. interesting. And mm-hmm. how about the Russian perception of Christian co-religionists who lived in the Ottoman Empire? I think this is the subject of your fifth chapter.
2: Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, well, I thought that uh, it would be uh, logical so to say to conclude the book by by mentioning uh, by, by by discussing uh, the Russian perception of. Uh, The Christian co-religionists, and uh, it's true that uh, a lot, a lot has been written already in historiography about uh, uh, Russian, um, Serbian, Russian, Romanian, Russian, Bulgarian, Russian Greek relations. A lot has been written also on the ways in which the Russians perceived any of those. orthodox, coreligionist religionist uh, peoples. But what I was interested uh, in was not so much uh, the Russian perceptions of each of those uh, pe- peoples uh, uh, in particular, but rather Russian perspectives upon the inter-ethnic and uh, interconfessional relations uh, within the uh, Ottoman Empire. Because one thing that uh, is remarkable about you know, the Russian uh, literature uh, about the Ottoman Turkey, is that the Ottoman Turkey is actually the first um, um, power uh, that came to be described as an empire uh, in in the Russian publications. In other words, uh, a polity that is characterized by some relations of hegemony and dominance um, of one particular people, of one particular community, over other peoples and other communities. So this heterogeneous, uh, hierarchically organized structure of dominance—that um, that, that is basically what an empire is about. So my uh, my thesis is ultimately that before the Russians came to describe uh, their own country as an empire, before they uh, came to describe any other country as an empire. Uh, they, uh, they they applied so to say the, the category of Empire to uh, to the Ottoman Turkey because it was in Ottoman Turkey that they first observed the structure of uh, dominance uh, or hegemony of one particular group over other uh, groups right and so uh, basically uh, my uh, my uh, my other argument in this chapter uh, is also that uh, the russian uh, perception of the of the orthodox religionists in the ottoman empire was characterized by a series of discoveries uh, of particular um, uh, religionist peoples. So, uh, I argue that, uh, the first such discovery was the discovery of the Greeks. Uh, uh Greeks, uh, not only as correligionists, uh, Greeks not only as, as, uh, as, the, as a people from which, uh, the Russians, uh, received, uh, their baptism, uh, but also Greeks as, uh, as, as, um, um, um Uh, Descendants of the classical, of of classical Greece, of uh, ancient uh, Athens and then Sparta, right? Uh, So basically, uh, in the second half of the 18th century, there emerges a powerful classicist uh, myth in the Russian culture. Uh, You know, this uh, early form of Russian uh, Philhellenism, uh, and uh, it becomes an important means to articulate the identity of the Russian elites uh, themselves. Essentially, the Russians, uh, as as we know from the studies of um, Vera Prospurina and uh, Leonid Zorin, uh, uh, the Russian elites present themselves as the new Greeks, uh, right? And uh, essentially, the Russian Ottoman wars are. Described as as a reenactment of the Greek Persian Wars of the fifth century before Christ, uh, so uh, it was in this context that uh, the Russians discover the Greeks uh, not only as co-religionists but also as as, um, as uh, you know as as a people who who are the descendants of that classical. Um, uh, classical ancient ancient Greece, uh, but uh, I, I uh, emphasize that the Russian perception of the Greeks was uh, ambiguous uh, because uh, the Greeks could not only be celebrated as uh, religious freedom fighters but they were also perceived as aiders and abettors of the Ottoman uh, dominance and of the ottoman uh, uh, tyranny, uh, because alongside, uh, you know, this image of the Greek rebels that uh, becomes particularly topical uh, in the 1820s at uh, the time of the Greek revolt against uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Greek War of Independence that leads to the establishment of the independent uh, Greek Kingdom, you also have this image of the Greeks as fanariots. Uh, in other words, as this um, uh, Greek aristocracy uh, that uh Was concentrated in the uh, suburb of Constantinople called Phanar, and which was uh, related to the uh, to the uh, Patriarchate Greek Patriarchate of Constantinople, and that uh, maintained very close relations with the Ottoman regime. So the Phanariot Greeks, at a certain moment in the late 17th and and the 18th century, become uh, important uh, diplomats uh, working on behalf of the Ottoman government they also monopolize uh, the thrones of uh, Moldavia and Wallachia as the two the Nubian or Romanian principalities that are vassals of the Ottoman Empire so they become um, uh kind of partners uh of of the ottomans um in in, in their imperial project uh, while they still retain of course their their orthodox christian identity and so uh um, the funeral Greeks in particular are uh, despised and are very much criticized uh, in the Russian publications of the late 18th and uh first half of the 19th century as agents uh, of the of the, uh, of the Ottoman government that uh, helped the Ottoman government to oppress uh, their uh, Christian co-religionists, uh, and in particular uh, their uh, Slavic Christian co-religionists. And uh, it was in this context that this um, uh, discovery of, of the Greeks as a people uh, is followed by the discovery of the Slavs uh, in the early uh, uh, 19th century. Uh, the Slavs uh, uh, are increasingly perceived as uh, the victims of not only the Ottoman dominance, but also of, uh, of, of, uh, of the Fenaria Greeks. So, as a result, uh, there emerges a veritable hierarchy of uh, power relations a complex hierarchy of power relations in which uh, the Greeks dominate the Slavs, but they are also dominated by the Ottomans. And to complicate this picture even more, um, uh, at a certain moment, the Russians also discover the Romanians as a distinct people. Uh, The Romanians, who of course are likewise uh, Greek Orthodox uh, in their religion, and who initially are perceived uh, as being um, uh, together with the Balkan Slavs, the most oppressed, so to say, uh, category of, of, of the uh, local population, and who in that respect command a lot of sympathy on the part of the Russians, but who with time towards the middle decades of the 19th century are also increasingly perceived as ultimately foreign to this uh, Slavic uh, community uh because of their uh, roman or latin origin and because of the uh, increasingly pro western orientation of their um, of their uh, ruling elites the boyars of uh, moldavia and valachia so uh Um, While the the peasantry and the lower classes of Moldavia and Wallachia are still uh, described in those uh, um, uh, terms in which uh, the Russians perceive the um, Bulgarians or the Serbs, uh, the upper classes of Moldavia and Wallachia towards the middle um, decades of the 19th century are increasingly perceived in the same terms in which the Fenariot Greeks are uh, described uh, in the Russian publications. In other words, uh, very, very smart, but also very treacherous, very, very disloyal, uh, and uh, and ultimately uh, very, very negative, so to say, in their impact uh, upon upon the local upon the local population. So uh, uh, to sum it up, let me say that um, uh, you know these Russian um, representations of the Orthodox subject peoples uh, of the uh, Ottoman Empire, present us with the very complex and the very uh, nuanced, I would say, picture of this um, uh, ethnic hierarchy uh, that, that characterizes uh, traditional continental empires. And in this respect, I would say that uh, the, uh, the Russian representations of the Ottoman Empire again stand out because the Ottoman Empire is literally the first country, the first power, which is described as an empire. Uh, I would say, uh, by, uh, by the Russian uh, authors uh, in the 19th century.
1: Um, Alfred, we already mentioned this here and there in other questions, but I would really like to return to something which seemed to me of particular importance in your book, and mm-hmm. that is your saying that in your book you tried to go beyond Said's reading of Orientalism, and in a way mm-hmm. against the grain of post-colonial studies. So maybe you could also talk a little bit about the stance of your book vis-à-vis mm-hmm. Said's concept of Orientalism.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, well, indeed, in, uh, in all the chapters that we have discussed so far, and definitely in the first four chapters of the book, I use the, uh, the, the, the category of orientalization. In other words, I, uh, I stress that uh, you know, the Russian representations of the Ottoman Empire at a certain moment portrayed it, as 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 typical of that uh, generic orient right uh, 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 and of course uh, this this generic orient was a way in which um, the European but also Russian uh, authors of the eighteenth and the nineteenth century tried to redescribe the diverse and complicated reality of Eastern countries as being kind of familially uh, familiarly different uh, so to say. Uh, uh, and and uh you know uh, to to substitute uh or to subsume this this actual diversity of uh, lifestyles of political structures uh, under this uh stereotypical uh, concept of the orient uh, which is characterized by oriental de- or asian despotism by uh oriental sensuality and sexuality by fanaticism, by ignorance, by stagnation, by uh, decline, uh, and and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, Russian diplomats, uh, Russian captives, Russian uh, military men all resort to this, uh, ultimately to this cliched image, uh, and and, uh, in, in a way, the Ottoman Empire becomes the most important uh, representation of this generic Orient, uh, so to say, in the Russian literature of the late 18th and the first half of the 19th century. So, in this respect, I do think that uh, uh, the Russian representations of the Ottoman Empire um, illustrate an important aspect of Russian Orientalism. Uh, and in this respect, my book uh, seeks to contribute to the discussion of Russian Orientalism um, that has been going on uh, in historiography since. Uh, uh, since uh, the year 2000, uh, when there was an important uh, historiographic discussion uh, uh, in um, in uh, the Kritika uh, journal uh, between Adib Khalid, uh, Nathaniel Knight, and Maria Fedorova uh, on the character of Russian Orientalists. And indeed, uh, the, the degree to which uh, uh the uh, the Saidian concept is applicable to the Russian empire is a matter of debate uh, I, uh, I i i do not think that uh one can find uh, uh, any evidence of uh mm-hmm. orientalism in uh, in in the first sense in which said uses uh, this term namely uh you know a cluster of academic disciplines that at a certain moment uh begins uh, to be used uh, as a as a tool for Imperial rule, so to say. Uh, in in my book, I demonstrate that although some uh, Russian uh, Orientalist scholars um, did did contribute some some. Uh, um, descriptions uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Their role in in defining the Russian policy with respect of, to, to, to the Ottoman Empire was ultimately rather minimal. But I do think that it is possible to uh, to to see in the Russian representations of the Ottoman Empire an example of Orientalism in the second sense in which uh, Said uses this term, and namely uh, uh, Orientalism as a style of thought that opposes generic Orient to generic Occidental, generic West, Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, in other words, this this style of thought that uh, is really operating around those binary oppositions between uh, the uh, dynamically developing West on the one hand and the stagnant and declining East, the rational West versus the irrational fanatical East, uh, and 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 so on and so forth. So I think that uh, representations of uh, the Ottoman Empire by the Russian diplomats, by the Russian captives at a certain moment, and also by the Russian uh, officers, military men, um, all demonstrate, so to say, uh, this uh, Russian uh, orientalism in this, this second sense in which uh, Say uses uh, this term in his in his book. I cannot really say that I go beyond Said, uh, but I I try to go beyond uh, the the discussion of Russian Orientalism as it has been taking place so far, because so far, scholars of the Russian Empire and early Soviet Union, who uh, addressed the issue of Orientalism, uh, did so uh, primarily with respect to what they call Russia's own Orient. In other words... Uh, we orient within the borders of the Russian Empire or of the Soviet Union, but I think that that leaves uh, uh, leaves uh, kind of um, neglected an important aspect, so to say, of Russia's uh, orientalism, which is about Russia's encounters with Asia beyond the borders of the Russian Empire. And I think that uh, Russian representations of the Ottoman Empire constituted a major major uh, sub-aspect, so to say, of, of the neglected side of uh, of Russian Orientalism, and my book was precisely uh, motivated uh, to, to, to fill in this, uh, this gap.
1: Victor, Victor. Thank, you thank you a lot for your time and for this absolutely fascinating conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we say goodbye, please uh-huh. tell us about your current projects. What are you working uh-huh. on at the moment?
2: Yeah uh well uh in 2012 2013 I I got uh the funding from um, uh, from a German uh, Gerda Hengel Foundation uh, for a new project which uh, is about uh the history of the Russian Ottoman wars and population politics in eastern Balkans uh so basically after undertaking this uh this um uh, study of uh the Russian in- cultural encounters with the Ottoman Empire I decided to move into the domain uh, of the military history, but not so much uh, the, you know, the military history in the traditional sense of the term as the history of battles or military operations, but rather, I would say, the new uh, military history, uh, the, the new military history that uh, studies uh, the social and, and uh, cultural and ultimately intellectual aspects of warfare. Uh, so, my basic uh, argument, my basic thesis in this new project uh, is that the Russian-Ottoman wars uh, constituted a major aspect of the transformation in the character of the European warfare from this traditional, restrained, regular warfare of the old regime Europe, uh, as it was practiced in the 18th century when the armies were professional, rather small, commanded by aristocratic officers and uh, focusing on uh, very sophisticated maneuvering and avoiding major battles and avoiding major destruction, so to say, right to the total warfare of the 20th century, where you have mobilization of the entire society for the purpose of the war, where you have uh, population politics or population policies with respect of the local population, with respect of different groups, ethnic and confessional groups of the local population, their putative uh loyalty or disloyalty to uh to the uh to to the regime to the uh uh army that is fighting on the front line. Alright, so my argument is that uh, it was in the context of the Russian-Ottoman wars that uh, the local population of Eastern Balkans uh, came to play a particularly important role in the uh, thinking, in the planning, in the strategic uh, approach of uh, the Russian uh, commanders before it happened in uh, other um, uh, regions or in other theaters of military operation, and in a way that was natural given the fact that a significant portion of the population of uh, southeastern Europe consists of, uh, of uh, Russia's orthodox-religionists who uh, from the very beginning were perceived by the Russian commanders and by the Russian officers as, as, as natural supporters, as natural um, uh, collaborators. Right? And then there is another, likewise, quite significant part of the local population who are Ottoman Muslims and who at least potentially are, uh, uh, you know, hostile towards the invading Russian army. So, uh, my project explores the policies of the Russian, uh, military towards these different groups of the Eastern, uh, Eastern Balkan population in the course of the 19th century. And I attempt to show how, uh, how these Russian Ottoman wars and the policies towards the local population of the Eastern Balkans uh, reflect the process of transformation of European warfare from this traditional warfare of the old regime towards the total warfare uh, of the 20th century with uh, occupations, uh, uh, forcible population removals, uh, and ultimately ethnic cleansings and, and, and genocides.
1: Well, I wish well, you all the best in your work mm-hmm. on this very exciting project and mm-hmm. thank you for being with us today on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies.
2: Oh thank you. Thank you, Olga, and it was a pleasure.
0: So this was my conversation with Viktor Taki about his book Tsar and Sultan, Russian Encounters with the Ottoman Empire. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please join us soon for more episodes of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And until then, this was your host, Olga Breininger.
2: Take care.